This episode of I'll Go First is brought to you by Acura, leading the way in auto innovation for over 30 years. Keep listening to discover how Acura sees things differently in the pursuit of precision-crafted performance. For me to start to really look back at things that I viewed as um, huge moments of failure in my life, I kind of see how they were like the necessary learnings for me to ultimately be successful. Hi, I'm Takara Small, and this is I'll Go First from The Globe and Mail. This is not your average tech podcast. We're going beyond the headlines and behind the million-dollar deals to chat with innovators and industry trailblazers. On this episode... My name is Raymond Reddy. I'm one of the founders and the CEO of Ritual, a food ordering app across 10 cities in North America now. Picture this. You're having the busiest week of your life. You have a major project due tomorrow, you're training a new hire in the afternoon, your inbox is full, and you're starving. Wouldn't it be great if you could swing around the corner to your favorite sushi spot and pick up something on the go? But when you get there, it's way too busy, and you just don't have the time to wait in line. Enter Ritual. In 2015, Ray Reddy burst onto the Toronto scene with his time-saving food app. What started out with a few restaurants in downtown Toronto is now available across Canada and in hotspots like L.A., New York, and Chicago. But the appetite for Ritual hasn't died down at all since. This year, they raised $90 million in Series C funding, and they're rapidly expanding into even more cities across North America. Their piggyback feature, which allows coworkers to pick up each other's orders, has been particularly popular with companies as large as Spotify, Oath, and Goldman Sachs. Ray and I talked about his favorite ritual order, his early morning gym habit, and the get-rich-quick scheme that made him lose it all at 19. Here's our conversation. What was the very first restaurant that was added to Ritual, and are they still a part of the app right now? Yeah, so the very first restaurant is a coffee shop on Bathurst and Front. It's called Thor. It's a little coffee shop there, and they are still on Ritual. Why did you pick them? So we were looking for a spot that was close to our office, uh, but the main one was we were looking for an owner that that was willing to experiment with us, an, an owner that understood that there would be a lot of issues in the early days, but you know, still understood that this was likely the way forward and this is kind of how the future of coffee and, and food would look like. Uh, and we met, and the owner of Thor is a, a guy by the name of Patrick. He had that mentality. He was a very tech-forward coffee shop owner. To this date, we have a we have a really good relationship. You know, sometimes when you want to roll out like early technology on on the restaurant side, we'll we'll typically roll it out with a few partners first, and and so a lot of our you know newest stuff gets rolled out into into that coffee shop first. We get to try it out and experiment with it right. a bit before we roll it out to you know thousands of other spots. What's your order there? An Americano. I actually have a couple of orders there. They they're able to foam milk really really well, so their cappuccinos are are pretty outstanding. But uh, I feel like the owner's going to be in love with you after this podcast. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. The Americanos are great, and uh, on on a day where I feel like a treat, we a cappuccino. Ritual has a lot of competition. What about your character helps you take on Uber Eats and the others? We've ended up in a weird spot with competition. So Uber Eats isn't really a competitor. Um, th- there's a few big differences. So food delivery companies add a, a bunch of extra fees for delivery. And so as a result, it ends up being a product that's used by people on the higher end of the income curve. It tends to be dinner 
for groups of people. So the average you know, basket size for delivery is like close to $30. Whereas ritual is all about individuals. It's the workday. It's an everyday habit for uh, the mainstream population. I, I think the way that we view competition is that the vast majority of food purchased is still people walking in and ordering and paying at the cashier the way that they've been doing for the last you know, 20 or 30 years. So really our biggest competitor is your habit from yesterday before you discovered ritual. And that is you know, 70, 80% of the transactions in the restaurant space. And that's what we have to displace. Both us and food delivery are still a very small portion of, of actual restaurant spend. What's the biggest misconception about what you do? You know, in a company, you always have stakeholders. You have, um, you have investors, you have employees, you have customers. And I think this, the concept of that, like, you're, you're free to do whatever you want, doesn't really exist. Um, you know, you have to usually do what's right for your employees. Your investors need a return, you know, on their capital. And you have customers who shape the products that you build and how you need to think about things. So it's a lot more structured than you, <laughs> than you would think it is. I think the overwhelming part of being an entrepreneur is there's the perception that there's almost limitless options. You can see that as uh, fun and, and that you have a lot of freedom. But I think the flip side of that is success or failure you know, as a company in, in a few years really comes down to you could do 20 things but you only have the ability to do like one or two and you have to pick the right one or two. To some degree, success is about spending your time on the right things and explicitly not spending your time on the other things. And I think often you fail because you spread yourself too thin. You try to do too much because you can do so much. And so I actually think in a weird way, the, the, the freedom and the number of things you could possibly do is kind of overwhelming. Um, and, and so mm-hmm. being able to cut through that noise and really focus on the one or two things that really matter is a super hard thing to do. So how do you yourself uh, cut through the noise and make sure you don't spread yourself too thin? I think it's through experience that I've that I've learned to get there. I admire people who, who are able to get this right on their first try. For me, it's been just the experience of, of working, of running a company prior to Ritual. That's really taught me how easy it is to get distracted. It's a fine balance. Um, you know, one of the funny things is you can experiment with a lot of things and when they work, you say, well, it's great that we tried that because it worked. And when it fails, it's easy to look back in hindsight and say, oh, that was a distraction. We, sh- we never should have done that in the first place. Mm-hmm. It's a weird blend of like art and science where there's no prescriptive formula to say like always focus on these things. Like sometimes weird distractions end up being massive opportunities for you. What's one weird distraction that led to a massive opportunity? As an app, we connect people with local restaurants, right? So you you hit a button on your phone and your coffee or your lunch is ready for you on arrival. And it was really an app that started out being made for individuals. We started observing that it was really starting to be used by groups of people because fundamentally coffee and lunch is kind of a social thing for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like two people might go out and grab lunch together or people will grab coffee, you know, in, in, in sort of group settings. And so we started to really play around with this idea of perhaps we were building a single-player product, but the use case was actually multiplayer. It could certainly have been seen as a distraction early on. It's like, well, you have something that's working. Why try to change it? So it's hard to explain mm-hmm. um, you know, why, but I think we just had conviction that we were building a single-player product for a multiplayer use case. Mm-hmm. We started to experiment with the feature we called Piggyback, 
where when a person orders coffee or lunch on Ritual, their teammates can hop onto that order. It's kind of almost enabling like a coffee run. You know, that's been one of the single most successful and important things we've built over the last two years. Interesting. Um, you know, a huge portion of our orders now go through piggyback, but not everything works. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we also have a lot more resources now than we did than we did before. So I think, you know, in, in our first year of life, we were much more focused. We wouldn't have entertained trying to go too broad and, and trying experimental features. We were pretty focused on like getting the basics and getting the foundation right. I don't think there's like a prescriptive formula on like how to approach it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what makes it hard. Yeah. You've talked before about failure. How do you deal with it? I think the first step is really, and, and it sounds almost cliche to say that you really have to just start to look at failure differently and look at failure as like the necessary milestones and learnings along the path of success. And it doesn't feel great when it happens, but I yeah. think often when you look back, things that I viewed as um, huge moments of failure in my life, I kind of see how they were like the necessary learnings for me to ultimately be successful. And so when you look at it in a vacuum, they seem really bad. But when you look at them five years later and you look at the successes you've had, you'll kind of realize that there was no way you would have had those successes if you hadn't had those learnings. I think both individually and as a company, failure isn't punished. The question is, what have we learned? What bothers me is making the same mistake twice. So I think we have very little tolerance for that, but both mm-hmm. both I do for myself <laughs> and as a company. Um, as a company, we actually design for failure. What that means is that we expect to have a reasonably high failure rate on features and experiments that we launch. Mm-hmm. And the way we approach it assumes that we're going to have a high failure rate. And if you design around that, you can tolerate a high failure rate. And so I, I'm sure you see it. Uh, already know what I'm going to ask next, but you mentioned huge failures. Mm-hmm. Tell me about one of your huge failures before Ritual. Uh, very early on in university when I was trying to build, me and my co-founders were trying to build our first company, and there was an opportunity that was presented, uh, an investment opportunity that was presented Ka-ching. by, yeah, yeah, by, uh, <laughs> by at the time, a, a, a close friend. We needed capital to fund an idea that we were trying to build out. It was a classic, like, get-rich-quick scheme. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I was probably like 18 or 19 and you know the logic all made sense i think you place a lot of trust in a relationship that you have someone that sounds like they know what they're talking about long story short i took the proceeds of the the capital that we had saved to invest in our company and instead thought of this as like a way to increase the value of that so we'd have more money to invest in our Mm -hmm. you know in our company and the end result was we lost all of it all Um, like like zero. I mean, it was it was probably you know fifteen or twenty thousand dollars at the time, which which today wasn't you know isn't necessarily a huge amount of money, but at the time it was everything that that, that I had, and it was it was a meaningful amount of money. Um, I was super upset by it for obviously a long time, and it had a, it had you know this happened through university, and there were like implications for me in terms of just how to how to you know pay for you know for tuition and, and make it through school because it was frankly money that I I didn't really have to lose. I really saw it as like the world is ending and this is like, you know, the absolute worst thing that that could happen. I felt like that about it for a long time. But then I think that the lessons that I, I took from that around doing my own diligence. On, even on friends. On, on, even on friends. Not trusting relationships, but understanding that you know about some things and you don't know about other things. And you should be careful about investing your money in things that sound good, but that you don't really know about. Ooh, right? delve into that. What do you mean? If someone comes to me with an opportunity to invest in a hair salon, I probably wouldn't do it. 
not because it's not it may not be a good business opportunity, but just because I don't really understand that space. And and maybe I would if I took the time to research it enough. I just know that there are certain things I understand, mm-hmm. and 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 if it's important, I'll take the time to understand it. Uh, but I generally won't just make investments or spend my time on things that that sound good, but I don't really have a, a foundational level understanding of it. I think these are like a lot of like very basic life lessons that most people learn at some point in their life. Mm-hmm. Uh, I learned them in a very hard way. It had a pretty big impact on just how I approached a lot of life you know, after that. And uh, to some degree, I look back on things that went well after. I can pretty honestly say that I don't think that I would have, I would have had the success that I had if I didn't have those failures and learnings around the way that there's no way it would have happened. Right. You didn't think about maybe pivoting away from entrepreneurship after that happened. It's funny how like you get labeled as as an entrepreneur and if you build more than one company you get labeled as a serial entrepreneur. I don't really think about it that way. The, the thought of like building a company from scratch isn't necessarily what appeals to me. It's being able to form a perspective on how the world should be and finding the best way to get that outcome. Sometimes the right way to accomplish those things is through a bigger company that have larger resources maybe. If you're trying to solve a problem on how you know, groups of people communicate with each other, probably being in a place like Facebook is the right way to have that, that type of impact. So what we were trying to do at Ritual, which was connecting people with, with local restaurants and local businesses, it's, it's one of those zero to one problems mm-hmm. where um, there isn't anyone really doing it. And, and if there was, it, it, you know, we may have decided to maybe do this through a, a, a large company. It's never been about building a company for the sake of building a company right. is how I should say it. And, yeah. and I think for some people it is that way. And I, and I don't think that it's about being right or wrong. I know that there are some certain people you talk to who are like, I've always wanted to be an entrepreneur. And it starts with, I want to build something. And then they will search for an idea. With me and my co-founders, it's always been the opposite. We will kind of like obsess about an idea or a concept and we'll, we'll just talk about it and talk about it and talk about it. And we'll get to a point where we just build enough conviction that we're like, well, no one else is doing it. It kind of feels like this has to happen, so we should do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's always been much more organic with us in that way. You lived in Silicon Valley, you relocated back to Toronto. Why? Why did you decide to make such a huge leap? That's a good question. Um, so when I was at Google, I uh, I moved to the Valley for a few reasons. Um, you know, one is I think when you work for large tech companies, being being in their headquarters matters. If you ever want to lead products with a global scope, it's hard to do that out of a, a satellite office. So usually, ha- you know, so so to some degree, if if you, if you want a lot of scope and responsibility and and ability to like really drive change, you usually have to, you kind of have to be at headquarters. Uh, um, not not always, but it helps. Yeah. You know, so that, that so that was one of the big reasons why I moved out there. Um, why I moved back uh, was was for a few reasons. Ritual is a very um, there's a big local element to it. It's not one of those like software companies that you can just sort of like build in one spot and then just scale it globally. There's like a lot of like actual on the ground operations that are like city specific. One of the the biggest challenges with a place like the Valley is that it's not really representative of of typical North American cities. How you know, so? The, well, in a few ways. Number one, um, the number of early adopters there is very, very high. Uh, and so often you'll see products that can work well in the Valley that may not really translate outside of outside of there. You know, the second is that incomes there are just dispro- just completely out of whack. Yes. In certain neighborhoods, the average household income is north of $2 million. So again, I think that when you start to look at the metrics and the demographics of the Valley, 
what you'll see is that it doesn't actually represent a lot of other cities. In our model, we wanted to really show that if we could make ritual work in a city, that that city was representative of other North American cities and really prove that if it worked in a place like Chicago or Toronto, there's no reason it wouldn't work in the other 15 or 20 cities you know, beyond that. That was not the, necessarily the reason why Toronto. That It was more that that was the reason why not um, Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. And then when you look at, um, you know, we were basically looking for a large city that looked like a lot of other big cities, right? So dense downtown core, typically like a financial district. And so when you kind of narrow that down, New York being your first city is generally not a great idea. Uh, and because it's just too large it's just and, too it, and it's too high stakes. Gotcha. Uh, so Sorry, you, New York. You, you, you <laughs> don't, uh, like New York is kind of like one of those like must win cities. So you typically don't want to experiment too much and learn too much in New York. You kind of want to get it right somewhere else and then go into New York with a formula that's already working. And so Toronto really worked out for us for a number of different reasons. Even though it's not in the U.S., it looks a lot like and feels a lot like a lot of other U.S. cities. But but what's nice about it is we were able to really stay under the radar for a while. We were able to make a lot of mistakes, learn and get the model right in Toronto. And that took us 12 to 18 months. And then when we got it right, then we started to launch U.S. cities. And, and so that's benefited us in a few ways. Because we've been under the radar on a lot of U.S. press until we were ready to launch a bunch of U.S. Right. cities, it's, it's helped us not have a lot of direct competitors necessarily that were caught, like just our, our, our success was contained to Toronto and right. that just gave us an advantage, you know, launching cities with, yeah, with just not a lot of competitive pressure, which was a nice thing to have. like as a kid? I was the oldest of three, so I think I was quiet, probably somewhat nerdy kid growing up, pretty into science and space and things like that. My parents bought a computer uh, pretty early on, probably when I was like 11 or 12. We were like... Ooh, what type of computer? uh, This was like an early, one of those early... XT models that booted off a, f- a soft floppy disk, and <laughs> like it was, it was a mission to get a to get a computer turned on at the time. Um, in '95, I was finishing high school, just as the the internet was uh, was really kind of taking shape, and um, and that really became something that I got just really focused on, and and something I thought a lot about. Mm-hmm. And were you at that point like? learning how to code and yeah that was one of the main reasons why I chose uh, to do like math and computer science at University of Waterloo but I more just really spent a lot of time thinking about just about computing and, and, and technology and was just more more fascinated with it than than anything else I think and is there anything in your family life growing up that helped make you the right guy to create ritual so I was I was born in the I was actually born in the Middle East um, and my parents immigrated to uh, to this country when I was um, 13, 13 years old, so like grade nine. You know, I think that when when you're an immigrant, you definitely um, develop a bit of a, a you know a chip on your shoulder. Um, when my parents came here, they had um, no family or friends in this country, so a lot of things were, you know, were very challenging for them. I think the biggest thing that you you learn as as an immigrant is that you don't take things for granted, and you and you kind of lose all entitlement from a very early age. I really believe that nothing would be handed to me. And everything would have to be earned. And that, in general, that I wouldn't get the benefit of the doubt on things. I had to be prepared to work twice as hard um, if I wanted to maybe achieve and or get the same things as someone else. And accepting that that's okay. Um, and, and kind of losing um, those notions of, like, fairness and things like that. You know, there's... Um, 
a famous blog written by um, Mark Andreessen. Um, people would ask him for advice on on, on it all, and you know, he had he had a, an interesting quote in one of his um, on one of his blog posts that uh, that I think I really live my life by. He said, um, um, "Be so good they can't ignore you," and that's really kind of like my philosophy. Now, the Acura Innovation Series. Why should race car drivers get all the fun? In the 2005 RL, Acura introduced super handling all-wheel drive, along with an obscure racing term, torque vectoring. A different way of looking at vehicle differentials, it brought track-worthy handling and excitement to drivers around the globe. A signature across today's lineup, this Acura World First continued their history of bringing precision-crafted performance to life. Visit acura.ca to see it for yourself. Now we're heading into the high stakes area where everything really matters. It's called rapid fire. Okay. <laughs> Pretty much what you have to do is you have to give a quick one word response to the next question. It's got to be very succinct, got to be straight to the point. Ready? Mm-hmm. Okay. What is your greatest fear? Letting people down. What do you do for fun? Hiking. What motivates you? Building stuff. What is your perfect day off? Either a hike in the mountains or wine country. How much sleep do you get on average every night? Good seven hours. What time do you wake up, and is the gym like a crucial part of your ritual? Gym is absolutely a crucial part of my yeah of my day. Usually, I'm up before six and and get a workout in from at, at six or six thirty a.m. It's the one necessary hour of the day that that I sort of take for myself, and it's it's more so uh, just how I manage stress. I feel a lot better and ready to take on the day after that. So, what's on your gym playlist right now? I'll I'll get some old school hip hop there from time to time. Some, <laughs> yeah. Some uh, Dr. Dre and uh, some Biggie. What's your least favorite piece of workout equipment at the gym? The squat bar. Why? Because it's hard and I know I have to do it. (laughs) What's one word that your friends would use to describe you? Obsessive. (laughs) What's your guilty pleasure? Almond croissants. That's your guilty pleasure? Almond croissants are my my guilty pleasure. Your guilty pleasure is better than my healthy (laughs) go-to. Oh my goodness. They're pretty unhealthy. Are they? They're okay. I want to pass yeah. you like my like meals yeah. for the day for you to analyze. Okay. <laughs> What's your favorite TV show? Uh, Game of Thrones. Your biggest pet peeve? People who say utilize instead of use. Ooh. <laughs> okay. And your favorite food? Chicken salads. <laughs> your food answers are like aspirational <laughs> to me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> if someone swapped lives with you, what would they find hard to adjust to? I think it's pretty high pressure. You get to a point where, you know, rituals now, almost 200 people, success or failure over the next four or five years depends on our team spending our time on the right things. And I'd, I'd say that's what, that's kind of what keeps me up at night, you know, to some degree, which is every day the question I'm asking myself is, are we spending our time on the right things? When the buck stops at you, you kind of take ultimate responsibility for that. You're just starting ritual. It's stressful and it's a lot of work. What motivational text message would you send yourself that you would see at that moment that would help you make it through the hard times? Don't take yourself so seriously. It'll probably all be okay. Okay, so now I'm going to ask you a couple questions under what we call our big three. 
you know, you're the first in your field to do what you're doing. Um, what's the one big mistake that helped define your career? My last company was called uh, was called Push Life. We uh, built software that turned normal phones like uh, BlackBerry or Android phones essentially into um, iPods. They could they could sync with music on your computer. And um, this was back in 2008 when the iPhone was one percent of all handsets. And the other 98% of phones were like Nokia, BlackBerry, Android, you know, everything else. And so the world changed very, very fast, um, much faster than we would have expected. So I think that we, we, we look back, it, it, it was a good example of how the past is not a predictor of the future. I learned a very important lesson, uh, which is that technology is not linear. It's on an exponential curve. The weird thing about being on an exponential curve is that it looks flat when you look back, but it almost looks vertical when you look forward. Right. I think that we expected, so we looked back and said, well, look at how, how slow things were changing with mobile software. And, and at the time, even a lot of people didn't have data plans on their phones and kind of assumed that the rate of change would be very slow going forward because it had been slow going past. Literally in three years, the world completely changed. It went from there being a lot of different types of handsets to there really just being two, Android and, and, and the, the iPhone. iPhone. And, and what was 1% of, of all you know sales ended up being 50% right. very, very quickly. And all of a sudden, people were paying for, not just paying for an internet connection in their home, they were paying for an additional 30 or $40 a month for internet on their phones. At the time, um, when, when we'd started, you would buy content from your carrier because people would, you know, if, I don't know if back in the day, like ringtones were a big deal and people would actually yeah. pay money to buy this stuff yeah. from, you know, from carriers. And it made sense because people would switch handsets so much. They would switch from maybe Nokia to Samsung to, to an iPhone or, or, or whatever. And so like fundamentally the content and mobile ecosystem just was night and day difference. And, you know, we were able to adapt and started to move beyond content into a broader, a broader sort of commerce um, but had we not, we would have we would have surely failed. What really caught us off guard was it appears sometimes that things aren't changing fast enough until they do, and then they change so quickly. So how do you keep pace? How do you innovate quick enough to keep pace with the technological change? I think that you have to take very long-term views on things, not a view of the world of what the next 12 to 18 months is going to look like. You have to have a view of the world of what the next decade is going to look like. What you think can be 10 years can, can may just be like four or five. Like, like self-driving cars is another good one. It's like it appears like it's really far away, but then all of a sudden when, when that here. tipping point happens, yeah. it will just be there. And, and, you know, there's some pretty broad implications of that. And what piece of advice would you give your younger self? I think it's the value of culture and teams. When you go through business school, you know, every, everyone pays a lot of attention to like the strategy and finance stuff. And there's usually like very little attention paid to like the importance of, of actually culture within companies. And it's a weird thing because it's hard, it's hard to shape sometimes. But when I, when I look at, you know, why Ritual is successful with technology companies, you really have no physical assets, right? Um, we, we literally are the sum of our people. And so both hiring the right people and, and, and making sure that you, you spend a lot of time finding and hiring and sustaining the right culture inside of a company is, and again, it's like one of these like cliche things that's, that just sound, they sound like words, but they, it really is the most important thing. And it's a weird one because if you ask me 
how you create that culture? The that was answer my is, next question. Yeah, the honest answer is I don't know. When you make it this far and you look back at all of the things that had to come together to get here, I don't know if, if I'd be able to replicate that, right? Because there are a number of things that we did intentionally and that we understand, but there's a whole bunch of stuff that was good timing, good luck, taking a chance on someone that ends up being amazing that in turn hires a bunch of other great people. And if you hadn't, you know, if you hadn't got that one person in, that entire team might cease to exist. We managed to attract the right people that in turn created a very strong cultural foundation. It was not even something we paid a lot of attention to at the beginning. And it ended up being our most important asset Mm -hmm. as a company. If I, had to, if I had to give myself advice, it, it would be to probably pay attention, a lot more attention to that uh, much earlier on than we did. And where do you see yourself in five years? Work-wise, I hope that Ritual is the last company I, I ever work for. You know, I think Ritual can be a, a, a multi-decade journey as we launch our product you know, globally and expand beyond, beyond restaurants and to other aspects of local. So I think we're very excited about that. Our team is now starting to get you know, to enough size and scale that, you know, that things like we talked about, about being able to take more time off and, uh, yeah, and have a little more work-life balance. Yeah. Uh, I kind of look forward to some of that over the next five years as well. Yeah. Thank you to Ray Reddy for sharing his story. Now we want to hear yours. Make sure to hit me up online. I'm at Takara Small on Twitter, or you can email the show at podcasts at globalmail.com. I'll Go First is a Vocal Fry Studios production. It's executive produced by Kieran Reyna and Katrina Bolak with editorial assistance from David Michaels. For more stories about entrepreneurship, visit theglobeandmail.com. Subscribe to this show wherever you get your podcasts, and I'll see you next week. 